Hello and welcome everyone. My name is Andrew Krause. I'm one of the co-founders here. I co-founded EventRight with Stephen Key over 23 years ago and been coaching and mentoring inventors ever since. Today, we're going to talk about some of the key, most common issues inventors have. Um, I got some notes on my monitor over here. We're going to talk about patents. What are some issues surrounding that? Patents, prototypes, outreach, um, which is reaching out to companies and money or funding. So I'd like to focus on those four topics. Um, I could definitely answer other questions as well, but I really want to make sure I deliver to you guys talking about patents, prototypes, outreach, and funding or money, and a lot of misperceptions inventors have, problems inventors have, and some really easy solutions. So it takes a while for everybody um, to kind of file in here. Um, Richard has a question. I think Richard's a fan, so don't think he's giving us a hard time. I don't think he is. Be happy to answer Richard's question. Uh, Willetta has a question about NDAs. Chris has a question about, uh, Chris just said he just signed up with us. That's great. So hopefully he's, Chris is set up. You're set up with your code very soon. Uh, Bohemian Hill said, hello, everyone. Um, and Willetta had another question. So people are starting to file in. Looks like we're getting close to 20 now. By the time, I don't know, about 20 minutes in, we'll probably have about 80 people or so live. Um, so it's going to be fun. Um, so what is our focus here at EventRight? Licensing. What is licensing? Licensing is basically renting or leasing your product to a large company. And they're going to handle the money. They're going to manufacture the product. They're going to use all their workers. You're not going to need to hire a single employee. And they're already in, let's say, 30,000 stores, 10,000 stores, 100,000 stores, whatever it is they're doing. Currently, you're just going to plug your product into that pipeline and take advantage of their logistics and their ability to get products in the stores because you guys have creative ideas that they don't. Uh, there are definitely companies that make innovative products, but you know, when you're an employee for a while, sometimes you lose your creativity. You guys think about things from a different angle, so never undervalue the value that you're bringing to a company with your ideas. You might not understand any of that other stuff that they do. And God, I don't want to start a company. That'd be a nightmare. That's not what I do. I'm a creative person. Um, but you still need to do the work to license it to that one company so they can do all the work from there. So that's what we specialize in. Anybody can do this. You can do it on a very tight budget. You can do it on a big budget, but we show you how to do it on a tight budget. You can't not have two pennies to rub together. Like they just reduced the patent provisional patent application fee from $75 to $60. And that's only $60. If somebody told me I don't have $60 to file a provisional patent application, I'm going to say you need to get your financial house in order and you need to get a job. And then, hey, maybe in a couple months you're doing better. Okay, then work on licensing your products. So you can do this extremely affordably, but if you couldn't afford a $60 provisional or you don't have a couple hundred bucks to your name, maybe get that. And then start working on this. Um, and that really got my nose is like super itchy. I'm sorry about the sneeze. And that tapers in with uh, the first question from Richard. Hi, Andrew, can you explain how InventRight is not a get rich quick scheme, but like a trade school to learn how to license your ideas and is not a ripoff scheme like the TVs on ads where they say they're going to do all the work? Yeah, we're, we're the antithesis of those guys on the TV ads. We're the antithesis, the exact opposite of an invention promotion company. Um, some inventors run screaming from us because, oh my God, they expect me to do some sort of work other than have the idea. You know, I can't help somebody that doesn't want to help themselves. 
there are a ton of companies out there go, oh, you just have the idea. And they will. So Richard's asking me to differentiate between us and invention promotion companies. Invention promotion companies in general, they'll go, they'll ask you for 10 or 12 grand. Sometimes they ask you for a little bit of money at a time, but most of the time people will end up spending spent 10 or 12 grand. They'll say, you don't have to do anything. We have all the relationships. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You have the relationships. Okay. All right. And then they pretend to work on it for a year. They send some terrible marketing materials to the wrong companies. And in the contract, it says they need to submit your idea to industry. So as long as they spammed a few people, they met their contractual obligation to you. I can speak from my personal experience. I have not met a single inventor in the 23 years I've been doing InventRight and the 14 years I ran an inventors association in Silicon Valley that has ever, that I personally am aware of, licensed a product with one of these invention promotion companies. Our students are licensing just... Do we just threw together just before the holidays over 100 of our students that are on our, our holiday gift guide that currently have products in market now? Now, yeah, we're good at what we do, but the reason why InventRight and our students are successful is because they actually do the work. You can't just come up with an idea and file a patent and expect to get a product license. That's not how this works, guys. Um, so the difference is, Richard's, so I told you about the other guys and Richard was asking how we're different. So we coach and mentor our students. We make sure you have great marketing materials. You've done your research on your product, neither products in the space. You have a good marketing piece based on that. You're reaching out to 20 or 30 companies quite often, not two or three. You know how to reach out via LinkedIn, email on the phone, and you know how to follow up. And you accept the fact that sometimes you need to drop them an email two, three, four, five times Maybe reach out different methods before you get a hold of them. Sometimes they'll say, yeah, I'll take a look at your sell sheet. And then they'll get back to you. You need to email two or three times before they get back to you. And again, inventors are all upset. But they said they would look at it. And in your mind, you're like, oh, they said they would look at it. So now I'm the most important thing in their day. And you're not. You know, so it's okay. And they respect you that you followed up a couple of times. Oh, sorry. You know, and once you accept that you might need, even after they say yes, send me your sell sheet to email them you know, two or three times before they get back to you and say yay or nay. And I've had plenty of students, they're like, it took them a couple emails before they responded. And um, what is it? What's Dana's um, texting me here? Um, it took a couple emails before they responded, even after they said, yeah, you can send me your sell sheet. Um, and they were like, you know, hey, this is interesting. And so they weren't like ignoring you. They were just busy or they're, oh, I'm so sorry. You had to email me a couple of times or they don't say any of that. And they go, hey, I'm interested. So people make all sorts of people don't do the outreach. So that should really be one of the first things we talk about. I want to make sure before we get done today, talk about patents, talk about prototypes, talk about outreach and talk about money and funding. We, we kind of talked about money and outreach already. Um, you know, I was saying you can do this very cost effectively, but if you don't have a couple hundred bucks to your name, you need to do that first. I mean, it's like you can't do it with no money. When people tell me they can't afford a $60 provisional, I just go, okay, well, how are you paying your bills? Like this isn't a get rich quick scheme. So you can make a lot of money. That goes to the other part of Richard's question, that this is not a get rich quick scheme. If you license something today, it's going to take the company on average, you know, 10 months to a year or more to launch the product. But when they're launching it, these are big companies. So they don't do things that fast. They have to put a lot of things into play to make a new product happen. But now they're selling, you know, 50,000 units, half million units, depends on the kind of company, how many units they're selling. But 
realize that once that is in place, then it could be amazing. You can have, I like to joke, delusions of grandeur when you're licensing and you're not delusional because for them, that big company to sell that kind of volume, that's not crazy talk. But for you to start your own business and sell this one product, retailers don't want to talk to you. They're, they're afraid you're not going to deliver on time. You're going to um, screw up an order, quality control issues. You're going to have cash flow issues. They do not want to touch you with a 10-foot pole. Now, I'm not saying some people can't pull it off, but it's very, very difficult. Now, when you license to that big company, you are that big company. They want to talk to them. So let's say it's something that sells at Bed Bath & Beyond, that buyer talks to the, the manufacturer that you license to, and they already have eight products of theirs in the store. And they go, hey, Sally, you know, what can we do for you? Well, I got this new product and give you discounts and these others. Okay, we'll put it on the shelf. But guess what? When they put it on the shelf, maybe they need to kick somebody to the curb. And maybe that person that decided to do a one product, one SKU company and sell it themselves fought tooth and nail and you were able to get into Bed Bath & Beyond. God knows how, but you were able to get in. You're the first person they kick to the curb when they want to satisfy that other company that's giving them what they want. So that's the reality. I'm not saying you guys should never venture a product, sell a product yourself, but licensing it to a big company, man, it reduces your financial risk, your time risk. You can keep a job. You can keep your business. It reduces your risk in every way imaginable. Um, so it's very powerful. So Richard, thank you for that question. Uh, next question is from Willetta. She is a regular at this point. Specifically, what all should be in an NDA? Before I do that, I want to show you guys this cool product that I got in the mail. Maybe you guys have already seen this before. But it it closes up. I only bought the lid. This is a hydro flask. That's a pretty incredible inventor and invention. And I got the lid and I got this on Amazon. So when you push this down, it closes the straw, right? And then you push this here and the straw just pops up. And I feel like an infant or something sucking on this, but then you have the straw. But here's what's kind of cool. So they give you this, it's three pieces. There's this piece, which is the straw. And then there's this flexible piece here, which is like a silicone piece, right? And so you stick that on the end and then you kind of stick it here and then you just cut it to the proper length. And um, when you're sticking this down, when you just push on this with your mouth a little bit, it kind of bends the straw and then you're able to suck on it like that. But then it's kind of like more just right down dead on the bottom. So you just kind of put that in there and you put that on here. Some of you may already have this, but I didn't have one of these. And, and then it, it just kind of pops up like that. And then you can just close it up. I thought it was pretty cool. So I do feel weird sucking on this thing like on a live stream. <laughs> I feel like a toddler or something. Suck it on my sippy cup. Um, anyway, just there's a little entertainment for you guys. Um, I don't know if you guys know, but I can I can be pretty silly. I'm not normally on my live stream. If you guys say say yay or nay to Andrew being silly, um, you're like, hey, as long as he still answers my questions, I'm good with it. Uh, it's fun. It's fun. I mean, I think we take ourselves all a little too seriously. So joking around a bit is good. Um, you know. So anyway, um, Willis said specifically, what all should be in an NDA? A non-disclosure agreement, um, I'm not going to give you the legal stuff, but basically the, the person you're sharing it with, so let's say you send it to a graphic designer, okay, and they're going to do a virtual prototype for you or a sell sheet or something. And uh, contractors or graphic designers or if you, 
God forbid, needed to work with an engineer, he knows how much money that could cost, but sometimes it's necessary. And it's just saying that the, whatever you share with them, they're going to keep confidential. Okay. Um, but you want to, so basically that's what an NDA is. It's a non-disclosure agreement, NDA. So you're going to, they're going to agree to keep it not confidential. Now, when you're dealing with a vendor, not the guys you license to, because this is going to freak them out, but if you include an improvements clause, this is if you had um, like a graphic designer or somebody who's doing a 3D prototype for you, or it's an engineer working on a little bit of something for you. And an improvements clause says that they, you own any improvements they come up with. So let's say it was this straw and they're like, hey, it could work like this too. You know, it's all yours because in the non-disclosure agreement, it had an improvements clause that says you own any improvements. It doesn't matter what they come up with. You own those improvements. So, you know, it's basically like if you saw, I've never seen this happen, guys. I've never seen one of our students in 23 years have a graphic designer or a um, engineer like steal their idea. Like they wouldn't know how to license it even if they did steal it, right? What are they going to do with it? So I think it's a, a really, but should you get them to sign an NDA, a, a contractor? Yeah, you you definitely should. So hopefully that was helpful, Will Adam. Um, so Chris said earlier, I just signed up with you. That's great. Chris, if you want to type in what coach you were set up with, if you weren't yet, um, that's fine. But I'm just kind of curious. Uh, Bohemian Hill said, hello, everyone. Boheme, Bohemian Hill. Yeah, I got that right. Um, who's a regular too? Well, that is another question. Do you have a prototype? Okay, good. Cause we wanted to talk about patents, prototypes, outreach, and funding today. So this is in the category. Um, do you have a prototype? Does a graphic designer do that as well? No, graphic designers don't do prototypes. Um, some graphic designers will do 3d computer generated prototypes like models. So there's a prototype like, so let's say, um, I wanted to make a new prototype of the straw. I could take the straw out. I could cut it up. I could find another material. And that's a type of prototype. But you're cannibalizing something that's out there. You're modifying a physical prototype, right? But about 85% of our students have virtual prototypes that we do with them, along with the marketing piece we call a sell sheet. So don't always think that you have to have a physical prototype. And so one of the things that holds a lot of inventors back is to think that they do. And that is not true. The big thing that we share at InventRight is you're not selling your patent. You're not selling your prototype. You're selling the benefits of your idea. And you need to illustrate those benefits in a marketing piece. So, and in that marketing piece, if you have a picture of the product. It cannot be a real product like this. It could be rendered and show this straw and show how it works, you know, um, then you're showing the benefit of your product, you know, and, and sometimes people subconsciously or consciously think they're selling their patent. No, you never want to say that. Then you're emphasizing your intellectual property way too much. I know you're proud that you file a provisional patent or patent, but it's really, who cares? They don't even want to see that if they're not interested in your cool product, right? So you're not selling your patent and then you're not selling your prototype because you're selling the benefit of your product. So if this makes it easier to, to, to drink on the go or whatever the benefits you want to talk about this thing, that's the benefit. You know, um, you can't normally have a straw and then close it up. So you could talk about that benefit. You'd have to, we'd have to work on that to figure out how that would eloquently be said. But maybe you just have graphics and you have some captions below it. 
But you could do that with a virtual prototype, right? And so some people, oh, but aren't they going to call me a liar for not having a real prototype? Like a lot of the time they can look at it and go, oh, yeah, we see the benefits. If our customers saw this marketing piece, they would want it. And this is a simple product. Yeah, I get it. And they literally have enough information. And most of the companies are still getting things made over in China. Maybe some of them are getting them made in the U.S. or elsewhere. And they'll go get a quote because they need to know. They're, they're fairly certain. And let's say they might be in, let's say in this fictitious scenario, let's say it's the straw thing. Okay. And they're fairly certain. Oh, we're 90%. Well, we just want to get some costing. Makes sense. Like, why would they send a licensing agreement? They want to get some costing because if it's if you can't make it at a reasonable price or if there's any issues making it, that's a problem. But most of the time, just by looking at the virtual prototype, they have enough or by talking to you a little bit. But inventors think like, if I don't have this working prototype, they can touch and use and feel like they won't license this thing and they'll laugh at me. And that's just not true, guys. So again, today we want to talk about patents, prototypes, outreach and money slash funding. Those are our main topics. Um, and you guys, most of these questions are already in those areas. So that's great. Um, Mr. Business, biz, business, business. Okay. That's kind of funny. Uh, can you give an example in the multi-tool industry that would not be able to get a licensing deal due to patent infringement? Okay. How different does the invention need to be and how similar? Okay. So, um, First off, guys, I, I, th I think that's a good question. Sometimes people say, and it could never answer this question, but I, I can answer your question, Mr. Business, Business, B-E-Z-I-N-E-S-S. -E -E -S. Um, I can answer your question, but sometimes people, what percentage different does the invention need to be? No, you can't ever answer that. So the first thing, I'm going to set this up, okay? The first thing you need to realize is most products are not patented, Okay. If you think every company files a patent on every product they work on, there are almost no companies that do that. There might be a few, but almost no companies. So don't think companies going to file a patent on every single product that they bring to market. That's not practical. It's very costly. They won't do it. Some file none. Some file a fair amount, but not on every product. So realize that. Um, so let's use this, this uh, straw example. Okay. Let's use that straw as an example. So if you see this, and you see there's 100 different companies making this. That's done. Nobody has a patent on that. Now, somebody might have a patent on a piece of it if it works just a certain way. But if you see a ton of people doing it, it's probably public domain. Now, if somebody has been selling a product for more than a year and they never got a patent on it, anybody can do it. That's public domain. So when people are like, unreasonably worried about infringing. I've never, ever had one of our students in 23 years had a company say, you're infringing. I've never seen that happen. Could it happen? Yes, but it's just not common. Okay. Um, mostly because people will do their due diligence, but it's not something you should be tremendously worried about. It's something you should be conscious of. Um, so if you're working on a product and you see the same product, like 50 companies are selling this pop-up straw, okay? And they're all doing it exactly the same way. That's public domain. I can't say that for sure, but 99.9% .9 chance that's public domain. Now, you can get a patent. You're never, you're not patenting your invention. I, this isn't the way an attorney would say it. This is the way I say it so people can understand it. You're patenting a piece of it. So let's say 
you know, there's there's 50 different companies making this pop-up straw. They're all making it the same way. But you make it a different way. Now you can get a patent on that, on that different way. But if nobody's got a patent on this, you're not infringing. And if somebody has a patent on this and they're only protecting, it's what are they saying the claims? What are they protecting? And they're only protecting, well, if I do it just like this or just like this, and you're like, well, I could do it like this. Well, then you can get right around it. That's why when you write and file a provisional patent, you want to think about the other variants, the other ways it can be done, and throw all that in your provisional patent. It only costs you $60 now to file a provisional. So why wouldn't you throw those variants in there? So one, don't think that all products are patented. Just because you have a Mr. Business is their handle, um, that's really hard to say. you got to get a new handle. But um, they have a multi-tool. So with multi-tools, I mean, people have been making multi-tools forever. So you know, maybe that multi-tool, like there's a, like there's just like 40 companies that have this and this and this feature, but one company has a multi-tool that has this extra, has a magnifying glass that pops out just a certain way. And somebody got a patent on that. Okay, you can't do that, but you can still do the multi-tool that you're, as long as you're not infringing. So, so it's not how different would the invention need to be? Are you violating any of their claims? Okay. And it's rarely a problem for our students. So, but here's the big thing. It's not, is it patentable? I don't care about that. Is it marketable? So if you're patenting a feature or a piece of the invention that's marketable, then your patent has value. If you're patenting a piece of it, but there's 10 other ways of doing it and nobody really wants your way, your patent's freaking useless, you know? So, but if you're patenting something, a feature of it that's marketable, great, good on you. Otherwise you're just wasting your time, okay? Um, so now some people work on an invention and it's questionable if this thing is patentable, but legally you can spend $60. You can use our smart IP software, which we sell for $99. You can file a provisional patent and you can legally say patent pending. Even if the pat provisional patent's garbage, they don't review it. You can legally say patent pending, create that perceived per perception that it's protected and you can license it. Our students license with provisional patents all the time. And then they ask the company, do you want to file one? They're like, no, you can file if you want to, but we'll still pay you royalties. People are like, you can do that? Our students do it all the freaking time. And then some companies are like, yeah, you know, we really want patent pending status. We really do want it. And then some are like, oh, I'm not doing a deal without it. But we get, so it's really a range from, I don't care. You can file it if you want. We'll pay you royalties regardless. People are shocked by that, but it's really common. To, you know, we're not obsessed with patents, but okay, we'll give you an advance on royalties and give that to your attorney and it's and you can use that to pay for the patent. It's going to protect both of us to like a medical device company going, oh, no, no, patents are really important to us. This is a critical part of the deal, which is not really common either, um, that that last one. So um, thank you, Mr. Business. Business. <laughs> um Arturo said, hi, Andrew, can you explain a trade secret? How do you license something with a trade secret for a shampoo? So a trade secret is just basically like Coca-Cola. The formula for Coca-Cola is an old famous trade secret. Because if they file a patent on it, then it's going to run out after 20 years. But a trade secret could literally be forever. Okay. So there's nothing to file. If you keep it a secret, so in your manufacturing facility, um, you know, it's, it's, it, nobody can really kind of figure out what is the formula for making Coca-Cola. 
you know, for that. And nobody can really repeat it perfectly. And there's procedures and they're hidden and the recipe's locked in a safe. And like one guy has access to it and you can trust him. You can do something like that as a trade secret. Now with a trade secret, nobody can be violating it. If somebody can figure it out and get around it, they can do it. Or if somebody in the company takes that secret recipe and for Coca-Cola and shares it with the world, your trade secret is no longer a trade secret. So it's basically like something that people wouldn't be able to figure out on their own. Like a, you said, a, a licensing something like a trade secret for shampoo. So people can reverse engineer shampoos and things like that, but they could be kind of hard. So that might be something that appropriate for a trade secret. There's nothing you file. There's no patent office. There's no copyright office. There's no Library of Congress. There's, not, there's nothing like that. You just keep it a secret. You don't tell them the ingredients, for example, with shampoo. And so, so how do you license something with a trade secret? So you don't tell them the ingredients. You see if they're showing interest in the product, because again, you're not licensing the intellectual property, the trade secret, patent, or copyright. You're licensing the product, the benefits of the product. So if they're intrigued, oh, wow, this makes my hair look so beautiful and shiny and stuff. And then part of doing the deal is that you will disclose the trade secret to them. You know, so you can definitely do that. It doesn't apply to the vast majority of situations. Um, very rarely would that apply, but it's it's a viable option. So hopefully that was helpful. I try to put it in like non-legal terms. I'm sure an attorney would say it differently. Oh, and by the way, anything I share with you today should not be considered legal advice. I'm not an attorney. Please consult your attorney if you're looking for legal advice. As he takes a sip of his water. Um uh, Gar Garmana is their handle. Um, hi, Andrew, any tips on what companies to look for in case, in case of products needing injection molding for mass production? Um, that's not really the way it works because there could be a products that are injection molded that are lawn and garden products, kitchen products, automotive products, products for the home. You know, it's really irrelevant that it's an injection molded product. You're looking for companies that are making the same type of product that you're making in the same category. So if it's a, let's say it's a lawn and garden product, you're looking for companies doing lawn and garden. If it's a kitchen gadget and it's a new cutting board, you're looking for companies doing kitchen cutting boards and related items. You get the idea. So it's not about injection molding. Now, where your question is very relevant, if you look at a company's product line, let's say it's a kitchen product and everything they do is out of solid metal, and you're asking them to do an injection molded product, well, look at their product line. And you're like, okay, that's not going to make sense because they don't have a single plastic product. Usually it's the other way around. It's mostly plastic. But you can look at their product line and go, okay, this isn't really a right match. This is a blow molded piece that's the size of my body. And the largest product that I see them doing is that big. That's going to be a bit of a stretch. But you see another company doing molded lawn chairs that are this big and you're like oh that might be a right match if it's in the lawn garden category you know so hopefully so the injection molding is not relevant okay you're looking for companies who are selling products in the same category as yours um diane uh evening andrew my one year ppa is soon to expire and i'm still working to get an offer. Hopefully this year uh, will, will it will happen. 
can you please remind me when my PPA expires, can I renew? So you can't renew, but you can just file that exact same PPA again. So let's say she says it's about to expire. Let's say it's going to expire in a month. Okay. She could take that same PPA and that, that um, PPA is going to give her a placeholder in the sand. It's not a PPA is a provisional patent application. It's not a patent. Okay. So she filed that 11 months ago, one month from now, if she doesn't file a full utility and reference her provisional, if she files a full utility patent, which could easily cost 10 grand and references the provisional, she'll get her priority date from whatever's in there from 11 months ago. Okay. Now, if you haven't made public disclosure, you're privately showing it for license to companies and you haven't put it up on a website, haven't sold it a swap meet and put it up in a public YouTube video. You can take that same provisional file again today. It's not connected in any way, shape, or form. You're not extending it. It's not renewing. You're going to file it today, and you get one year from today, okay? So I think I piss off a lot of ethically challenged attorneys that leave information out with their clients because I get people that will file what you don't need to do, by the way. File a provisional patent with attorney, and they call me, and they're, Andrew, Andrew, because they've been watching us, and they trust us on YouTube or LinkedIn or wherever. My PPA is going to run out. My attorney says, I'm going to lose my priority date if I don't file a full utility patent. I'm like, uh, he's leaving a few things out there. Yes, you will lose your priority date. He's fully accurate there, but he's not telling you. He didn't. Did he ask you if you made public disclosure? No. Well, he should have. Did he ask you if you're licensing or venturing? No. Well, he's trying to get a bunch of money out of you, you know, and and, and he's not telling you that if you didn't make public disclosure or invention, yeah, you're going to lose that earlier date and you're going to get a new date from when you file the exact same provisional again for another 60 bucks. And yeah, if somebody came up with that idea in that period of time, then that could be a problem. I've never seen it happen in 23 years. Is that worth $10,000? And I ask people that, is that worth $10,000? So you go for it then. But I've literally never seen that happen. Could it happen? Yes, it could. But is a coulda, shoulda, get struck by lightning sort of thing worth $10,000? Spend another $60 on a provisional patent. Again, that's not legal advice. So for legal advice, but realize that attorneys aren't always giving you all the information. Now, they're not also thinking like product developers and licensors like you guys are. So they're not thinking in those terms. So they're like, oh, yeah, you're going to lose that 11 months of protection. And they're worried about that. But they're also like, uh, I can get 10 grand out of this guy now because I'm giving him a reason to act. You're going to lose that priority date, but they're giving you half the story, not all patent attorneys, but most of them, they don't really explain that to you. And that's a little unethical if you ask me. Okay. Um, thank you, Diane. Uh, let's see. Peter said, would it be a good idea to get a business partner who is connected to industry for a cut of the royalties based on what you have seen? No, it would be a waste. And so I'm not saying that that wouldn't be useful, but that's just like looking for a needle in a haystack and it's totally unnecessary and it won't get you where you need. So if you find an industry professional, they might have a relationship with a company or two but you want to reach out to 20 or 30 companies. So when our coaches coach our students, they're helping you make a list of 20 to 30 companies. This perception like you need a connection is just utter 
BS and a giant waste of time. If that company is in a major retailer where you want to be, our coaches guide our students to research them on LinkedIn and find some marketing managers and also reach out via email and phone. So you got LinkedIn, phone, email. Why do you think you need to be introduced via an industry expert? And so I'm not saying that would all be bad if you knew somebody. Oh, I happen to know somebody that's an expert in kitchenware and I got a kitchen product. Well, okay, he works for one company. He maybe knows another. That's weak. That's ridiculous. And then you're going to make them a partner to reach out to two companies that may or may not be interested when you should be reaching out to 20 or 30. So no, I think it's a terrible idea to find somebody connecting the industry and then give them a percentage. And they're probably not going to do next to nothing. And also you need to ask them, well, how many products have you licensed? If they don't know how to approach companies the right way, they'll be like, hey, you want to start a business? Or they probably won't. They're not going to start a business with a rookie inventor. But you know, it's just not going to go anywhere. It's this, it's this kind of like, and then that's almost as bad as, oh, I'm going to license my product by getting on Shark Tank. You know, there was an article that recently came out in Forbes. You guys should read it about Shark Tank. You know, it's a freaking TV show, guys. That's not a way to license a product. And it's just the, the, the success there is just, it's nothing, man. I mean, it's just ridiculous. Um, So yeah, no, but I love that you asked that question, Peter. It's great, but you're making stuff up like most inventors. That's not what you do. You're going to make your list of companies that are in the same category and selling at major retailers, and it should be 20 or 30 companies. Our coaches help our students do that. We have a service, too, called All Access, where we do that for people um, as well. You can find that on our services page. But for the most part, what we've been doing for 23 is empowering students to make the list that's right for that particular product. And then so now you have that skill and now you can do that for any product you ever come up with. It's a skill you need to learn. And people suck at it. And it is not hard. Anybody can do it. But you guys can do it. So hopefully that's very encouraging for you, Peter. You can totally do this. Um, oh, Chris was saying earlier, Chris signed up. Should I have a coach yet? Yeah, make sure to fill out the new student survey and then just call the main number, Chris and um, Heather, Desiree, Carrie. They're all fantastic customer service people, and they'll get you set up with a a coach since you signed up. Um, Angenique, I think I'm pronouncing that right. I have a list of 50 companies I was going to contact, but I found out they are smaller companies to larger companies that don't take submissions. Any suggestions? Um, so when I have new inventors that say companies don't take submissions, um, sometimes it's because they didn't approach the company the right way. Sometimes it, it really is, but they didn't approach it the right way. You called, you got a gatekeeper, you fumbled on the phone. and and But then if I call or if I messaged a marketing manager on LinkedIn, they're like, yeah, send the sell sheet over because I approached it the right way. But sometimes not every company, guys, is open to receiving submissions. And if that's going to throw you off, you should play another game. You got to get used to that. Now, if you're just like, I'm thrown off by initially, but I'm adjusting. I'm cool with that, Andrew. I realize if I reach out to 20 companies, hey, maybe five aren't open to outside submissions. Great. But also realize sometimes you didn't ask the right way. You didn't say the right things. You didn't approach it right. And they're like, this person doesn't know what they're doing. And they're kind of brushing you off. You get that sometimes. But other times it's like, no matter how you ask, they would tell you that. Perfectly fine. Perfectly acceptable. Not a problem. And and Um, That's not a problem. Just accept it. You know, um, now 
Um, I've had people that would reach out and sorry, my nose is a little itchy. Uh, they'd reach out to a gatekeeper or they reach out a different way. And then I have another student that will reach out maybe on LinkedIn. They approach a different way. And they're like, yeah, send on over. So realize that can be the case. There's no harm in that. If you call the gatekeeper and they said that, they didn't have it on their website. And you approached a marketing manager on LinkedIn and said, are you open to receiving outside product submissions um, you know, for potential license? And they're like, yeah, send it on over. I've seen that happen too. So you just need to get used to the flow of this and you'll, you'll be fine. But it is, I understand it's a little off-putting at, the t- at times. Um, once you get used to it, it's not. Uh, Darth Winning. Hi, Andrew. All the way from Australia. Great. We have tons of students in Australia. We've got more students in Australia than even Canada. Australians are very inventive people. Um, great. I love Australia. Uh, I just signed up with InventRight. Looking forward to working with your team. That's great, man. So we got, we had Chris that signed up. We have Darth that signed up. That's fantastic. Um, Chad, when negotiated a contract, Chad's an existing student. He's an amazing student and he really rocks it. Um, I forget who's Chad's coaches though. Um, when negotiating a contract, should you send your revised version with suggested changes to them or ask them to make the changes and resend to you? Yeah. So, um, a lot of times you can make a suggestion. So when one of our students gets interest, they usually will talk to our negotiation coach, Paul, Paul will go through the contract with you and he'll say, and this saves our students a lot of money because you're not signing anything yet. So Paul can advise you, hey, I would suggest that you change this clause and that clause to be more advantageous and more fair. And he'll, you know, you can write up a, a sentence or two on what you want to be changed, even exactly how you want it to be changed. And then you send it back to them and their attorney and then let them make the change. But sometimes you want to write it out exactly like you want it to be or telling you uh, the essentials of what you want to be changed and let them make it. So, yeah, Chad, you're sending it back to them. You're definitely making the suggestion what needs to be changed. And you might even write word for word, hey, this is what I think might work word for word. Maybe talk to our negotiation coach and let them and their attorney change it. Saves our students tons of money with the attorney. But more importantly, it saves our students from um, having an attorney killing the deal for you. When attorneys, when you get a licensing attorney interested or get them involved in your project, we don't want our students doing that. They'll, they'll try to nitpick the deal to get more billable hours because the more they complain about things, the more it goes back and forth, the more money they make. It's a conflict of interest. Um, we do want all our students and insist that all our students, when a deal gets 95% done with the student and with our negotiation coach, Paul, Paul will tell the student and they'll put it in writing. Look, do not sign this until you have a licensing attorney go over it. But that's like a contract that's like 95% done. And then they're just literally dotting the I's and crossing the T's for an hour or two. Costs you next to nothing. And you do not let them talk to the company. They will muck it up. Not all of them, but way too many of them. Do not let your licensing attorney talk to the company if you've got other help and assistance like you get at InventRight. Let them go over the contract and give you your advice, but don't let them talk to the company. Okay. Uh, Let's see. Uh, Clayton said, hey, Andrew, can you use a product that is currently on the market as a prototype? Yes, you can. Absolutely. If it's modified to show your own product. Yes, you absolutely can. And if you're concerned about it, I've never seen this be a problem. But you can even use uh, other people's logos. If it's this, if this is all private, so this is something called fair use. If you're privately just sending a sell sheet to a marketing manager 
and you modified somebody else's product and you just say at the bottom, all, all trademarks, copyrights and logos and products are the rights of their respective owners for illustrative purposes only. It could be very small type at the very bottom of your sell sheet. It's totally okay to cannibalize somebody else's product, put it in there as a prototype. Now, sometimes it doesn't look good enough, and then we do a virtual prototype for our students. But if it looks good, why not? Why not include that in there? It's totally okay. Never, ever had one of our students get in trouble for that. People do ask that question fairly frequently. Never seen it be a problem. Um, let's see, Ethan, uh, Ethan said, Hey, Andrew, I'm going through smart IP. Smart IP is our software that helps people file a provisional patent or write a provisional patent, I should say. And I'm supposed to be very detailed in some parts, such as the variations. Could I just say something like textured surface, or do I need to write exactly how? So Ethan, one of the things you're already on to the most important part that you guys, if you've been watching me for a while or, or my partner or you're a student or you've been following us for a while, 80% 80 of filing good provisional is not the legal speak. That it kind of helps you with the formatting with our software. But 80% of it's just you being an inventor. So you're like, damn, Andrew, I can do that. I thought I need to be a patent attorney. No, you just need to be an inventor. So what you need to do is to go. So if this is showing earlier, this is this retractable straw that I just got yesterday. I'm all excited about my retractable straw. And yes, I do look like a toddler drinking from it. That's just to give you guys a laugh. <laughs> um, but if it worked a slightly different way, earlier I showed you guys the mechanism at the bot bottom that makes it pop up like that. And also why when you push, it moves the silicone piece so you can suck from it. Let's say there was a, a different way of doing that. So this is the bottom part the, the, that flexes. So when it flexes like this, you can suck through it. Um, but it also makes the, makes the, so you can push the whole thing down so you can close the cap. But let's say this whole mechanism down here was different. There's another way of doing this, okay? Which I bet there would be. I could think of probably a few if you gave me about 30 minutes. Um, cover those. Cover those ways of doing it. And having drawings is really great because if you didn't talk about it enough, you could still go back and go, hey, I didn't talk about it, but there is a picture right there. Um, but you should talk about it. Let's see what, could I just say something like textured surface or do I need to write exactly how? You need to, if somebody looked at the provisional pen, if they could look at it and kind of make it, that would be great. So it, with this, I'm just making my table all, all wet here, but... Um, if you had a drawing of, the, of this piece right here that was a little different and it was a bulb, let's say it's a, a round bulb instead of this, make a drawing of it, right? And put that in there and then talk about it. And you could have call outs on the drawing and talking about different aspects of it. So when you have the benefit of the graphic and then you have, you know, call out A and B and C and they're, and they're, and they're pointing to those pieces on it, then you're just rocking it. Any of you guys can do that, you know? And if you're having a hard time, some of us can't draw worth the, worth the damn, um, you know, you, you can have somebody that can do a very simple line drawing. It doesn't need to look beautiful, right? Um, so, okay, Ethan, thank you for that question, Ethan. Um, Fred said, I like this. What's one tip you have for a beginner? So. I'm not going to give you one. I'm going to give you a bunch. And so I promised at the beginning, and I put in the description for this um, show, that we were going to cover patents, 
prototypes, outreach, and money. And we covered all of those things with questions, but I'm going to cover the most important part that beginners really fall off on. So those, and every, a lot of, everybody does really until people get, get, understand the invent right approach. So Fred, with patents, you should never be filing a patent. You should always be filing a provisional patent because it gives you a whole year to fish off the pier. You don't need to spend 2,500 bucks of the provisional patent with attorney. You can use our smart IP software for 99 bucks and the patent office fee to file at $60. Oh, but Andrew, I've, I've read patents. I can't do that. It's like some sort of foreign language. No, a provisional patent doesn't need to be written like a patent. It can be written in common English. There are absolutely no formal requirements. You could scribble on a piece of paper with a crayon. They would accept it. And do you want to do that? No, you don't want to do that. Um, but you want to cover all the variations for the provisional patent. So one of the big mistakes that beginners make is to think they don't have the confidence to think that they can file a provisional patent themselves. You absolutely positively freaking can. 80% of us just thinking about variations, including it. And then you can use our smart IP software to, to file the rest of it. So, but don't think you're selling your patent. Never, ever say to a company, I want to sell you my patent. I know you're proud of your patent. Don't freaking say that. You want to license them the product. And ultimately what you're licensing isn't even the product, but they're intrigued by the benefits in the marketing piece. That's what you're clearly selling. So the other thing was prototypes, which we covered as well. So with prototypes, you don't need a prototype most of the time. Now, if you want to play around, we had a person earlier talking about, hey, can I cannibalize this product? Hell yeah, go for it. Buy this. Like if I had the straw, I could buy the straw. And if I had a new mechanism for the bottom there, that was a different, I would just modify this thing. I wouldn't recreate the freaking straw. I would buy the straw and I recreate, I would mess around with the bottom part that I want to change. Oh, if I said, I don't like the way this thing works. Initially, I wasn't understanding how this thing works. And I'm like, I was sucking from here. And then I realized I needed to push down a little bit and then it would bend that silicone piece. So then I could suck better. I was like, this thing sucks, pun intended. And then I'm like, oh, that thing works better. So, but maybe I just want more suction power and I want to create a new mechanism on the bottom. I would buy this thing that came with the lid and the straw and I would just modify it. Okay. Now you need to do that sometimes to go, is this thing going to work? So we're not saying never make a prototype. It might be incredibly crude. And you'll be like, I verified, I can't make it work exactly right, but I know they can. Okay. That's good enough. And you're like, oh, my prototype's too crude looking. So get a virtual prototype done. You know, this is what it looks like. And it looks all beautiful and nice, you know, and maybe you also will send a picture later after they show interest with your prototype showing it working, or maybe you can't even get it working, but you know, they can, that's okay. You showed them the benefit in your sell sheet. You had a virtual prototype. They're intrigued by that. And they're like, oh yeah, we can make that work. Or they ask you a few questions and you answer them. And they're satisfied. That happens all the freaking time. So one of the biggest things, Fred, that holds back in, um, uh, beginners is they think they need 10 grand for a pad. You don't, you need $60 for a provisional. They think they have to have a prototype. Well, I don't have skills to do that. Hell no, you don't need that. Um, and then they think they need a ton of money. No, you, if you had a couple hundred bucks, you have enough to work on licensing your product. Now, not every product. There's obviously some very complex products you could work on where that won't be the case, but the vast majority of products, you can get away with murder and very, very little and still get it in front of companies and sell it. Um, and so, so I, I, I just addressed money and funding there. I addressed prototypes, patents, and then I addressed outreach. We talked a little earlier about outreach, Fred. 
you can get to anybody, man. I mean, if these are major companies, you can use LinkedIn, you can use the email, you can use the phone. And we guide people to get a hold of just about anybody. To think that you need connections or an introduction, bullshit. You don't need an introduction. You don't need a connection. Oh, why would they talk to me, the lonely little inventor? Because you got a cool idea. You know, and you're just saying, hey, can you look at my sell sheet? They don't care what you've done before. You don't have ever have to license anything before. You know, especially in the United States, we still have this thing like they're not asking you for your credentials. They're not asking you for a portfolio. They're not asking for any of that. You're just going to send the sell sheet and the sell sheet, the marketing piece, that's rocking it. And that shows them what the benefit is. And it's not for them. It's for their customer. If their customer saw this, it'd be like the marketing manager is going to look at it and go, you know, our customers are 50 something old women. And if they saw this, they would want it. And now he's calling you back. Right. OK, so there, Fred, that was a small summary. Great for everybody, but great for Fred in particular. Um, those are you asked for one tip. I gave you a bunch, but those are some major. There's many other pitfalls, but those are some of the major ones. Disconnects in thinking. So hopefully that was helpful. Um, No. Prolific invention is their handle. Just today I had a eureka moment and invented something I've been working towards and trying to figure out for 10 years. Wow. Any advice for a game-changing technology? I know I always say that, um, but this is the real deal, absolutely, and a disruptive technology. So for, first off, I mean, if you've been thinking about something for 10 years and you just came up with how to figure it out now, man, happy birthday. That's amazing. That's really amazing. Um, and good on you for being so persistent. Um, so, but if it's really a disruptive technology, those can be kind of harder sometimes. If it's like an energy invention or whatever. So sometimes with those types of things, if it has a lot of different applications, you, if you can figure out what's the iteration, where could this be utilized? If it has a, could be utilized in a lot of different ways, maybe it's just one, but that's the lowest hanging fruit. It's going to be easiest for the company to implement with the least investment and the consumer is going to see the benefit in the easiest. And then maybe if, because if you say it's really that disruptive, maybe there's other versions of it. And then when you license that, then you can license other versions too that are harder to launch too. So that's if there's a lot of different versions. So that'd be some advice there. Uh, Garmana is their handle. Hi, Andrew. How do I trace manufacturing companies? Contact, because sometimes I find them in their brand on Walmart, but can't find their website. Okay. Um, well, you need to you need to Google uh, the name of the company. So it's on the back of the package. A lot of times you're doing online. Sometimes you can even, it'll be in the description online, um, but sometimes it's not. So you can take the name of the product, put it into Google, Google the name of the product, and it's showing up on 10 other sites. And some other sites with that same product will have more information for you. And it might have the name of the manufacturer actually in the description. Where on Walmart, it doesn't have it, but somewhere else it does. Another tip is a lot of times you can, like if there's a lot of pictures of the product, you can go click on different views. You can even zoom in and magnify a lot of times on a lot of websites. And you can see the back of the package. You're not even in the store and you go, oh, XYZ company. Now, uh, Garmana's specific comment is, look, I found the name of the company on the back of the package at the store, but I can't find the company. Um, so I, I, I would think that most of the time you could. Um, sometimes it's a house brand. So like, for instance, Mainstays is a Walmart brand, right? So you might realize, oh, that's a house brand. 
Um, but you really need to kind of dig a little bit more. I find most of the time you can dig and find that. That would be kind of weird. Like now sometimes it's like distributed by, and then you need to figure out the company, but a few tips, I would Google the name of the product and I would Google the name of the company too. And, but Google the name of the product, other websites, because not every company has a public website. So that is true. Um, but usually you'll find some sort of information on them. If it's like XYZ Company LLC, usually you can find it. Um, so try that. See if that works. Hmm. Patricio uh, says, uh, I have several ideas. How do you categorize them by their possibility of success? Um, yeah, uh, that would take a while to go into. So I'll give kind of a short version. Um Inventors on was good at analyzing this. I think that our students are very good at it after they work on their like second or third or fourth project. People become less emotional about their ideas and more analytical about their ideas. Um, but, you know, I think that's fine. If you're just really passionate about a particular product, you learn the invent right process and then you're like, oh, I understand how to evaluate ideas better. And then you're doing that on your second or third or fourth product, or hopefully your second or third product. Um, I think that's perfectly fine. You know, if, if you're learning the process and you really didn't pick the best project, but it helped you learn the process, that's still a big plus. Um, but as you get more pro with this, you should really pick it out. So, so first thing is manufacturing, easy or hard. You look at it and go, is this going to be really hard to manufacture? Are they going to need a new machine? Or am I looking at, you know, you look at this straw product, and you're like, I know they can freaking make that. But then you got another product, like another gentleman was talking about earlier, and he's like, it's a game changer. It's really difficult. It has like 50 moving parts, and it's really complicated. But a lot of times, manufacturing, easy or hard, you can look at similar products. Well, they can make that, so they can make this. Okay, And you got another product, you're like, oh, crap, this one's going to be a tough one. So that's one, one aspect, manufacturing, easy or hard, because it will be Harder to license a product that is harder to get up and running and manufacture because the company's going to look at it and go, this is going to be harder or easier. Now, they see the benefits big enough, they'll go through the pain of working on a project that's harder with manufacturing. And just by using common sense, you can kind of see that, okay? Um, so uh, manufacturing, easier or hard. Then the benefits. So this product has a really clear benefit. Hey, on a marketing piece, people are just going to get that. Over here, I got to explain this and then this and then this. I could see people getting confused. So is the benefit like right in your face, really obvious? Also, is there a real market for that benefit? Like you look at the market space and there's a lot of people offering a similar benefit, but you got a point of difference. You have to study the marketplace of all the products in the space. Or is like, oh, nobody's really making anything in this area, but, and which is kind of, could be a warning sign, but, but. I think I really do have a point of difference. I think people would be intrigued by the benefit of this product. And it's not just me because I want it, but I really sincerely believe that other people want it. And I can see there's this type of product over here and this is a little bit different, but people like that, I think they're going to like this. And oh, there's like 10 of those. And so that's kind of like, is there an intriguing benefit? Is there manufacturing easier heart can it be made and at a reasonable price and you can just look at similar things and go oh yeah i got a new straw the thing at the bottom is a little bit different because it has this benefit we can make it for the same price no issue but if it's going to be made you know 10 times more expensive than anything in the category hmm, i don't know i got to look at all the products in this space will people pay it 
So those are just a few things. I could go on and on on this, but so maybe those things will help you uh, pick a pick a project. Uh, Patricio, that was Patricio. Let's go with some questions. Only got about five minutes left, but I, I want to get to some questions from people that I haven't gotten to. Um, another regular, their handle is Don't Touch Me, which I love that handle. That's hilarious. Um, we haven't done one of their questions yet. I have two medical devices, same list of companies. Okay, great. I like that. What's the best way to introduce the second product? When I pitch, I always talk about the product, um, but not product B. Yeah. So what he's saying, which I love, he's got two medical products and he believes that both these products are right for all these companies. Let's say he's got 20 companies. The way you want to do there is send it out project number one to all the companies. And when they say, no, they're not interested say, I, I fully understand. Thank you for viewing the product. I got one more product. Can you take a look? You know, and that's fine. But, and because what you're doing there is you're making a relationship with project number one. And now you got their email, probably got their phone, got their contact info because their phone's probably on their email signature. And so you're making the relationship with project number one. You're easy enough to work with. Why wouldn't they want another product from you? So you, but to, to send a couple products at once without permission, I don't advise that. They just don't have time for that. Now, don't be upset if they don't like that first product. Say, you know, they'll be like, damn, this person's really professional. I fully accept this first one's not a right match for you. I have another one. It's attached. Let me know if you're interested in this one. And that's the last one I have for now, but I hope you're open to more ideas as well when I have them. And that's the way I would approach it. So it's really amazing when you reach out to companies for a project and you can realize those contacts. So let's say you got a project, reach out to 30 companies. 28 said no. Two showed interest. One fell off. You did a deal with one. Those 28 that said no, you didn't waste your time. You made a relationship by getting a no on that product. You got the contact information. They received the idea. Everything went fairly smoothly. They said no. That's your opportunity to send more products. You're creating a pipeline for your product. So that's fantastic. Inventors don't look at it that way. They look at it as rejection. And they look at themselves as one-trick ponies. Almost 95% of the inventors I talk to, even though you're really focused on one particular idea now, they're like, oh, no, I, yeah, I have other ideas. I come up with ideas. I'm like, great. Well, keep that in mind. So um, uh, Patricio is asking about which, comp which projects to work on. If you had um, three projects in kitchen and you had one automotive and then one garden, I would work on the kitchen one because especially if you could reutilize the context for project number one to send project number two and project number three. Now, let's say you reach out for 30 companies for this kitchen item on number one and you got to look at it and you look for project number two. You go, uh, you know, 20 of these companies are a right match for product number two. You start sending products that, damn, didn't you look at my product line? Isn't it obvious this isn't right for a company? Don't do that. But maybe 20 of those 30 for project number one are appropriate for project number two. Do that. But you can reutilize those contexts. That's when you're going pro. That's when things get easier. That's when you can focus more on inventing and, and, and not be establishing relationships all the time. Uh, let's see. I, I page down and page up and it jumps. Uh, Danny said, hey, Andrew, I have a few app ideas that add features already existing apps. I first thought about developing them from scratch, but that is too risky. Yeah, it is. Now I'm torn between licensing and Kickstarter. Uh, I don't really recommend app ideas. 
If you're a professional um, software developer, fine. If you're not, I wouldn't do it. The app geeks look at you or the software guys look at you and they go, oh, that's a great idea guy, but that's going to take program, you know, and they're a little standoffish. Now, sometimes people go, well, what about my kitchen gadget? Why wouldn't they say that? No, they don't do that. But the software guys do because everybody and their grandmother has an iPad or an iPhone or an Android and has an idea for an app, but they don't understand the back end database and all that. So if you're, if you're a professional software developer, or software professional, licensing apps is the same as licensing other products. If you're not, I don't recommend it. Um, it's very hard, especially with big companies. Now, there's plenty of small companies making apps that you could license to. I find it very, very difficult. Um, if you're like, hey, I want to do an app or I got an automotive product or a kitchen product or garden product or whatever millions of other categories there are, I'd say work on one of those before the app. So I'm not saying don't work on the app, Danny, but really, really um, difficult, definitely. Uh, prolific invention, excellent information. I'll sign up with InventRight. Great. Uh, so anybody else is interested, you can go to inventright.com and you can click on contact us and you can book a call with Sylvia or Dana. They're both super friendly. Even if you're like, oh, I'm just investigating what, what does InventRight offer? How could they help me? They're not going to hound you or anything. They're just going to explain it to you. And you can also go to InventRight, click on services and understand there too. Um, I would say 95% of people sign up with our premium one-on-one coaching program. When you see like our gift guys, over 100 people, students of ours that have licensed products, the products currently on the market, they all had the premium program. Although we had two students in our academy program just licensed recently too as well, which is really, really cool. Um, oh, great. John said... Hey, Andrew, thank you so much for allowing me and my coach to be part of the New Year's uh, list. And I'm really internally grateful to you and Stephen for InventRight. Um, the time is now. Thanks, John. That's really nice of you. Um, you know, all the nice things that people say about us, whether it's fans or our students, it really keeps us going, keeps myself going as a co-founder, Stephen, our folks in customer service, definitely all our coaches. Um, we feel like we're the, the white hats, the good, guy in this, good guys in this industry. We always do right by people, share a lot of free information. So all of you don't have to become a student. A lot of benefits to becoming a student. Um, and make sure to check out on eventright.com our free resources. So if you're on the web, not on a phone, I, I forget where it's on the phone, but it's in the upper right-hand corner. It's a big blue button you can click on on the phone. I think you'd have to use the hamburger menu and find it. I think it's weird they call it a hamburger menu. Um, uh, I can't eat mama, mama spider monkey. Okay. M oh, MMA spider monkey. All right. You must, I don't want to mess with you. MMA spider monkey. Thanks so much for all the time. Information listening has been super valuable. How does a payment plan student work? Payment starts, help complete payment before starting. So yeah, people can pay over one payment over six months or even 12 months. We, we really don't have a problem with delinquency with our students because we're, we, we, we vet our students and we really help people. And they're like, damn, I won't continue to get help. So, um, yeah, you can even pay over 12 months. So um, thank you, Heidi, for the kind words. Um, uh, and Carlos, just quick question. Can you get a company to pay for your pads? Absolutely. Our students do it all the time. And our negotiation coach gets our students, um, helps them with that all the time, how to approach companies to do that. So I remind everybody to take care, keep inventing. Uh, make sure to click subscribe down below. Click the notification button. I'm giving you guys a lot to do. 
and the thumbs up button. And if you guys, after I, I don't know how long after I stopped the live stream that you can comment, I think it takes a while, but make sure to comment on our videos too. So subscribe, thumbs up and, and uh, notification button. And I will see you guys next Monday. Take care, everybody. Keep inventing. See you. Bye.